stop to listen You can hear their hearts beating loud Can't keep those California Indians down Hello everyone, you're listening to American Indian Airwaves, County Radio. For Marcus Lopez, I'm your host for the hour, Larry Smith. On today's program, four weeks later, a critical update on the Amazonian forest fire started for business interests and its impact and implications for the region's approximate one million indigenous peoples and over 95,000 historical and cultural sites, including sacred sites, under threat by the recent proposed revisions by the National Park Service for the National Registry of Historic Places. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves, County Radio. You can hear when the moon shines bright, the lone first part of today's show, we go to the heart of the Amazonian forest, where approximately one million plus indigenous peoples reside as part of their traditional homelands and territories. We are four weeks into the Amazonian forest fires, which were intentionally started for corporate business interests. Indigenous peoples throughout the region are under threat by the current Brazilian presidential administration of Bolsonaro, as well as global capital and transnational corporations. Over 74,000 forest fires throughout the Amazonian region have been reported since the 1st of 2019, an 84% increase from last year. In the first segment of today's show, I speak with the executive director of Amazon Watch, a nonprofit organization that works to preserve the Amazonian rainforest and support indigenous peoples throughout the region. Leila Salazar Lopez is the executive director of Amazon Watch. I spoke with her regarding the, the Global Day of Action coming up this September 5th of 2019, as well as getting an update on the implications and impacts the forest fires are having throughout the region. The last week has been very daunting and devastating and overwhelming because of the fires that are raging across the Amazon rainforest. And just this year, there's been over 74,000 fires in Brazil. That's 84% more than last year. So just to give you a sense of what we're talking about, this is a very dire situation that also follows a 67% rise in deforestation. And so, you know, increased deforestation with fires, it's a pretty devastating situation on the ground in the Amazon. And because you all are interested and concerned about the rights and territories of indigenous peoples. The unfortunate thing as well is that there's about 
3,500 fires that are currently burning on nearly 150 different Indigenous territories. And people ask, you know, how many, you know, there's been 74,000 fires, how many are burning now? There's, you know, upwards of 10,000 fires burning right now across the Amazon. Most people have heard of what, what's happening in Brazil. Um, there's also fires and some of the biggest fires happening in Bolivia, in the Chiquitano dry forest, and then also in Peru. And the big question is why? You know, why is this happening? And it's not an accident, unfortunately. It's a plan. And the new government in Brazil, the government of Jair Bolsonaro, they have had a plan to destroy the Amazon. I mean, it's a part of their election campaign. It's a part of their plan to destroy the Amazon, to make room for industrial agribusiness, to make room for development. You know, there's a ever old kind of dichotomy of jobs versus the environment. You know, the economy isn't doing well, so, you know, we'll protect the Amazon later. We got to like destroy it to, to save our economy. That's what the government has been saying. And that's what they got elected on. That's what, what Bolsonaro got elected on, in addition to many other um, disturbing platforms. And what the result is, and, uh, immediately when Gerald Bolsonaro was elected, he um, gutted the environmental and indigenous agencies that protect um, the rights and territories of indigenous peoples and the forest. I mean, these are protections that had been set up after the dictatorship in Brazil, you know, Brazil was known as one of the places on the planet that had really strong environmental laws and protections for indigenous peoples. And actually, you know, the demarcation and recognition of indigenous peoples' territories was growing before this administration took place and took power. There were you know, victories won to, you know, to demarcate indigenous peoples' territories. When I say demarcate, I'm talking about Indigenous peoples um, gaining ancestral title to their, gaining, gaining recognition to their ancestral territories. And it's very well known that the Indigenous territories are some of the best protected forests across the Amazon and around the world. Um, there's also protected areas that are threatened. There's 33% of the fires in protected areas. So, you know, when you look at a map of the Amazon and you look at the green that still remains, most of those places are indigenous territories and protected areas. And unfortunately, many of them are on fire. And it's not an accident. It was there. They were intentionally set by people, actually farmers and cattle ranchers who were emboldened by the policies and the rhetoric of the government basically saying we're going to develop the Amazon for agribusiness and other industrial um, expansion, and, and that's what we're seeing now. You mentioned uh, with the fires, my understanding um, with the fires intentionally being started, that we're now approaching four weeks of massive fires throughout the Amazon forest re uh, region. And um, according to Amazon Watch's um, complicity and destruction to how northern consumers and financiers enable Bolsonaro's assault on the Brazilian Amazon, that uh, according to the report, it says the title territories of Brazil's 305 distinct indigenous ethnicities comprise 23% of the Brazilian Amazon and are among the best conserved, conserved forests in a mosaic of protected areas spanning the Amazon region. And I was wondering, just with the assessment that, that Amazon Watch has right now, how much of this has been damaged? 
How many communities uh, have been damaged? Do you, can you estimate at this point? I mean, as, as the latest, it's it's hard to say the amount of hectares, the amount of actual land that has been devastated by these fires. I don't think no one really, really knows the real number. Um, the latest, as I mentioned before, is that there are 3,500 fires burning in indigenous territories. And that's 3,500 fires in, you know, in over 100 territories. So that's, that's a lot. I don't know the exact number of hectares, but it's significant. Um, if you just look at, you know, we could send you a map, or if you, if you all go to AmazonWatch.org, you can see the map that that shows dots of all the different fires that are that are happening right now, and it's overwhelming. It's it's devastating because you know the Amazon rainforest, although some would like to, you know, counter, you know, contradict the reality and spread fake news, the Amazon are the lungs of the earth. They provide, you know. Up to 20% of the oxygen that we breathe. They provide, you know, it's a home to, you know, the world's biodiversity. And, you know, the Amazon is mega biodiverse. It's among the most biodiverse ecosystems on our planet. And it's also one of the most culturally diverse. And because the Amazon is, you know, lush with forests, this forest is also a massive carbon sink. Right, it absorbs all the carbon that we are emitting. Unfortunately, these fires are not absorbing, are not allowing the forest to absorb this carbon they're actually emitting, and so that's that's really devastating to the climate. Right, so you need forests to protect the climate, and right now the forests are on fire. So for all of us that are concerned about the climate emergency we're in, this is just making it worse. So we have to work really hard to stop the fires and not just first and foremost stop the fires so that the forests and the people are out of harm's way and second we have to you know we have to amplify the continue to amplify the importance of the amazon rainforest and and hold accountable those that are trying to destroy it the brazilian government and also other governments are complicit if they enter trade agreements with this government, they're complicit too. Companies and financiers, as we mentioned in our report, our complicity destruction destruction report, it's these companies are complicit. Well, not only are the fires important, but for indigenous peoples as place-based peoples, this is, you know, without the land, without the language, there is no no people. And so the, the fires is so much more than just um, global warming. It is about, to use the quaint term, settler colonialism, about predatory capitalism. And some of the, you mentioned um, farmers, and I was wondering if maybe you could talk about some of the, the industries that are using the fires as a pretext to not only... I, contend at least culturally eradicate indigenous peoples but gain access to land and who are some of the uh, american companies uh if you will that are complicit and i'm thinking of the recent expose on the intercept about uh, uh blackrock yes um yes that's um of, of course that's all true indigenous people of the amazon have been calling for the attention of, you know, the threats to their rights and territories for decades. And that's, you know, that's actually one of the unfortunate things about this whole situation is that these fires have been going on for weeks. And, you know, even when the first ever 
Indigenous Women's March happened two weeks ago. You know, there was 2,000 women from over 100 different nationalities that had their first march ever in Brasilia. And, you know, we did everything possible to raise attention to their march, you know, to in, so, you know, which for them was really about territory and body and spirit, because really, like, like you said, you know, this isn't just about, it's not just, it's not about rights or territories. It's about both. And there is no, there is no, you know, there is no forest without the people, then there's no people without the forest. And really, they're the ones who have been sounding this alarm for so long. And now, finally, people are paying attention because the forest is on fire. And, you know, we're proud to be standing with APB, the you know, Articulation of Indigenous Peoples of Brazil. They are the, you know, they're basically prior to Bolsonaro being elected and now on the front lines, you know, resisting at every moment, just like they've been resisting, you know, colonization for over 500 years. They are at the forefront of resisting Bolsonaro and all of the, the government and the companies that are complicit. And we've worked together to release this report. I mean, this report called Complicity to Indestruction was jointly done with Amazon Watch and APB, and we released it in April to really highlight who's behind this, who's behind getting, you know, Bolsonaro elected, who's behind, you know, shifting the government from a government that, you know, worked to protect the rainforest to one that is just, you know, opening up the Amazon for business. It's agribusiness. I mean, there's huge connections um, in the Congress to agribusiness, and this report exposes exposes the government connections to agribusiness and their plans to expand their operations into the Amazon. So we have companies like Cargill. We have companies like ADM and Bungie. These are major agribusiness traders from the U.S. There's JBS, which is the world's largest meat producer based in Brazil, but they're exporting beef to not just the United States, but to Europe. There's And then there's financiers behind it, right? There's asset managers. There's banks like HSBC and Santander, and then there's asset managers like BlackRock. And BlackRock is the biggest funder of climate destruction. And they are financing companies that are, you know, are invested in destroying the Amazon, both in Brazil with agribusiness and in the Western Amazon with oil companies. And um, so we are actually part of a network called BlackRock's Big Problem, which is a network of organizations that are calling on BlackRock to, you know, to stop financing these climate destruction, destroying companies and development projects that are affecting indigenous people's rights, territories, and climate justice. So BlackRock is a big one. We're focusing on them um, in particular and a handful of other companies in an upcoming global day of action for the Amazon. You know, a lot of people, you know, are outraged, are incensed, are depressed by seeing these fires and want something to do, want to, you know, want to do something. And we're so grateful for everybody who has signed the Pledge of Resistance, which has, which is basically a call from APB, the, um, the Indigenous Peoples Movement in Brazil. It's a call from them to join them. So they've asked get signatures on that pledge, and they've asked for direct support and solidarity, which we're gathering and sending them financial support. But, you know, if you've done that, if you sign the pledge, if you've donated, what else can you do? And 
everyone can do something in their own way, whether it's, you know, organizing an action or nonviolent direct action or a protest or a rally or a benefit concert or a silent vigil, whatever you can do, whatever you feel called to do, we're asking you to do that on the Global Day of Action for the Amazon, which is next Thursday on September 5th. And we just put up the announcement um, for the Global Day of Action, and we ask you all to gather in community, organize your own event, your own action to for the Amazon. Um, and to find out more about that, you can go to AmazonWatch.org and, and join us. And you're listening to an exclusive interview here on American Indian Airwaves County Radio with Leila Salazar-Lopez. She is Executive Director of Amazon Watch, providing us an update on the Amazonian forest four weeks later and its impacts on indigenous peoples throughout the region and how people can help for the forthcoming Global Day of Action. And now back to the interview. With the Global Day of Action coming up on September 5th, are there any particular um, strategies um, such as the front offices of the Brazilian embassy or Mm -hmm. the headquarters of any of these uh, transnational corporations that are complicit in in the destruction? Yes. So we are calling on everybody to go to Brazilian embassies and consulates and also to the front doors and offices of the companies, which I mentioned some of them, you know, BlackRock and Cargill and HFDC and Santander. But also, you know, there's companies that are not the big traders that no one's heard about, but they're companies that are name brand companies, that are companies that we all support and shop at, like Costco, like McDonald's. So it'll be easy it's pretty easy. I think every city in the U.S. has a Costco or McDonald's. So there's opportunities for, for you to go right in your backyard. And so at the, at the Action Network page that we've set up for the Global Day of Action, we're going to actually put a list of 12 companies that people could, you know, so we could focus our efforts on these 12 companies to start. There are dozens and dozens of companies, but um, so that we could focus, we're going to focus on the dirty dozen. Um, which includes some of these companies that I just mentioned. And I would imagine that that would include maybe boycotting these companies, pressuring them to obviously change their their business practices. And and what about um, the financial industry? Do we have anyone um, on the list that's complicit in this uh, in the destruction of uh, the forests, if you will? Yeah, there's BlackRock. There's J.P. Morgan Chase. There's Santander. There's um, HSBC. Um, and in San Francisco, um, there is a BlackRock office here in San Francisco. And so we are actually going to be starting our action at the Brazilian consulate and then marching over to BlackRock. So that gives you an example of what we're, we're going to do. The Global Day of Action page, uh, is that uh, the name of the website or is that just part of the Amazon Watch uh, website? If you go to amazonwatch.org slash amazonfires, everything's there. The pledge to, to be in solidarity with the Brazilian indigenous movement, um, the Global Day of Action, and um, opportunities to donate to support our work, to expand this work, and also to, you know, to fund the resistance, to support the front lines, to support the indigenous movement in Brazil that is that are being affected. And you know, there's there's Apibi, there's Koyabi, which is an indigenous organization of the Amazon in Brazil. 
there are specific nationalities that are that are affected um, right now that need immediate immediate support and um, have reached out to us. So we're responding to those calls, and you know we need people to continue pledging their solidarity and doing actions and donating to keep to keep this going and change change the story. Right? We don't want the story to continue to be fires and destruction. We want the story to be indigenous led solutions. We want the story to be you know a thriving and biodiverse and culturally diverse Amazon rainforest that's, you know, that's protected for, you know, the the people and the communities and the animals and all the relatives in the Amazon, but also for all of us, because we all need the Amazon rainforest to breathe. Well, not only that, there's the, the historical genealogy of the land and the people. So how much has been lost, right, over the generations to where we are now and, and the threats now for many indigenous peoples and as well as other plant and animal relatives is not just threatened, but the possibility of extinction, if not oh, yeah. in this generation, within a few generations. Yes. Which, um, which leads me to, you know, where's uh, Funai in all of this? So Funai is the, um, it's basically like the Bureau of Indigenous Affairs um, for Brazil, right? The Indigenous Agency of Brazil. They have been completely gutted and defunded by this administration. They have their hands tied. Obama, it's the same thing, the environmental agency. They don't have funding to monitor and hold accountable those that are destroying the forest or burning the forest, you know? And so that's why I go back to this is not an accident, you know? When your hands are tied and your funding is cut off, there's only so much you could do. And that's what the Brazilian government has done. I mean, they've literally given, handed over the protection for the environment to the agricultural ministry. You know, like, how is it going to be protected if those that want to destroy it are the ones that are <laughs> guarding the hen house, right? Like we would say. So, you know, it is of great worry that the forests are burning and, you know, the communities are affected and the biodiversity is affected because... Yeah, I mean, all the warning signs are there, right? It's what the indigenous relatives have been saying for decades, is what now is confirmed by science, by the climate report, by the biodiversity report. And so, you know, I think that this fire, these fires have really, you know, awoken people about the severity of what's happening. And, you know, I think never in the time that I've been doing work in the Amazon have we had this much attention on the Amazon and out of tragedy hopefully comes huge you know opportunity to and hopefully it's not too late to really do what we need to do to protect you know the world's largest and most biodiverse rainforest and it's it, it's encouraging that so many more people and so many more movements are interested in our joining, you know, for example, Extinction Rebellion who is focused on stopping the last great, you know, this extinction crisis that we're in. You know, they're joining and they're partnering and they're calling on all of their people around the world to do actions on the Global Day of Action. And it's not just one day, right? This is just the starting point. This is this is just the tip of the iceberg. You know, this is, you know, we're not going to stop on on September 5th. You know, we have to make sure that, you know, as the U.N. meets, the U.N. General Assembly meets, and there's a U.N. climate summit in New York at the end of September, that the Amazon and indigenous people's rights is is of at the top of the at the top of the agenda. 
And two, with Bolsonaro, since he's taken office at the beginning of the year, I mean, he certainly has targeted indigenous peoples, but they're they're not the only population demographic, if I understand correctly. I know there's a free um, Lula movement, and you know, we can certainly talk mm-hmm. about you know his incarceration and as a, a way to um, bolster uh, Bolsonaro's um, presidential election um, uh, opportunities last year. And um, but homeless people, LGBT folks, um, the uh, landless uh, peasant movement—they're um, all targets. The women's movement. The w- women's <laughs> movement. Yes, you could write the entire, uh, the whole list of social markers, if you will, that he's just going after all these folks as a way to get everybody out of the way to allow the privileged few mm-hmm. in political positions of power in government and these transnational corporations who do business right with third-party companies within the political boundaries of Brazil mm-hmm. and um, and so there's so so much more um, tied to this entire situation and I know and in, with in, indigenous folks in Brazil the the fight for and the struggle for, Indigenous people's sovereignty and and self-determination has been an intergenerational struggle for for many, many decades. And I'm I'm curious with this administration, just with what you've seen so far and given the situation where we are presently, how much is this administration set back Indigenous peoples within Brazil's human rights? Um, I'm just going to go back to what um, our sister and amazing leader, Sonia Wajajada, who's the president or the general coordinator of APB, says that um, just in the first first 100 days, you know, she says the first 30 days, and then it's like in the first 100 days of um, Bolsonaro taking office, his policies and rhetoric have set back all the, you know, all the efforts and all the work. 30 years. I mean, it's set back, you know, the indigenous movement, the environmental regulations and advances, you know, 30 years. So it's, it's pretty, you know, it sounds kind of familiar (laughs) (laughs) about what's happening. And there's a lot of ties to, you know, what we're seeing in the United States, you know, and interestingly enough, Bolsonaro calls himself the Trump of the tropics. And, you know, when you, he's looking to others, who, you know, are spewing very hateful, racist rhetoric. And, you know, it emboldens that kind of language from a so-called leader, emboldens those who are hateful and racist to do horrible things. And we're seeing it in Brazil, we're seeing it in the U.S., we're seeing it in many other parts of the world. And, you know, it's interesting that, you know, Bolsonaro has rejected support and aid from France, but you know, has accepted aid from the U.S. and Israel and Chile. And, you know, I think there's a lot of, there's reasons for that. You know, there's reasons for, you know, that, you know, rejecting aid from France and claiming it's anti-imperialist, but (laughs) accepting it from the U.S., it's just not, 
It's not consistent. Well, a response to this situation uh, by the plurinational state of Bolivia is so contrary to Bolsonaro's posi- Bolsonaro's position. You know, in Bolivia, they've managed to um, muster up over four thousand people now to fight the forests uh, or to fight the fires in the Amazon. They've leased now their second super tanker to um, to combat the fires, and they continue to mobilize and utilize more resources. And, you know, the president, Evo Morales, has agreed to accept any international aid that's offered to help fight the fires. Yep. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, I mean, that's, I mean, it's a quite, quite a difference, right? And yes. Do you really want to stop the fires or not? You know, and there's, it seems like there's just a complete lack of political will to, to do that in Brazil, right? I mean, there's, you know, Bolivia, you know, there was also intentional you know, fire, you know, arson right. of the fire of the, um, of the forest as well. And for the same reasons, for the same reasons to make room for agribusiness, but the response by the government has been completely different. And, you know, and Brazil, frankly, needs to continue to be pressured by the international community. They need to be shamed for what they're doing um, because, you know, and it is worrisome that, you know, the, the immediate response you know, let's 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 go back to what the Bolsonaro was saying. You know, before there was international outcry. I mean, he was just he wasn't saying anything about the fires. It was an emergency. He wasn't declaring an emergency until the world started saying, "Hey, you know, we might have to like stop our trade deals. Hey, we should reconsider our trade deal deals with Brazil because they're burning the Amazon, which is of global significance." And you know, as soon as you know trade deals and talks about beef boycotts started happening. Then there was some, you know, they had to hold, they had to hold a, a press conference to talk about this and say that they were going to do something and send in the military. Now that's also worry, worrisome considered, considering that Bolsonaro is a former military general and has said horrific things about the Brazilian cavalry. Why didn't they just, you know, kill all the indigenous people when they had a chance during the dictatorship? I mean, he said things like this. So, Sending the military to fight fires is not the solution. Actually, you know, putting the agencies that you defunded to work and accepting international aid to protect the lungs of the planet is is what needs to happen. And we want people to to participate in the Global Day of Action happening this September 5th of 2019. That's on a Thursday. For our listeners um, that want more information, not only about the work that Amazon Watch does, but also the Global Day of Action, where can they go again? So you can go to amazonwatch.org slash Amazon Fires or just amazonwatch.org and it's on the front page. You'll see you know, background, you'll see opportunities to act um, and take action, sign the pledge, join the Global Day of Action, contribute funds if you can do that. Um, And all of this is very helpful to stopping these fires and supporting the front lines, supporting the indigenous people who are in the face of this devastating, devastating situation and really need our support right now. And that was Leila Salazar-Lopez. She's executive director of Amazon Watch, providing us with an exclusive update on the Amazonian forest fires started for business interests and its impacts on 
the potential 1 million plus indigenous peoples throughout the region and the forthcoming Global Day of Action happening September 5th of 2019. For more information on Amazon Watch and the Global Day of Action, you can go to their website at amazonwatch.org. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves, Cowdy Radio. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back. I let my heart bleed. I consult the sky. I ask my grandfather why as I send my cry. They said Lakota boy, time to defend or die. Hear My Cry by Frank Waln here on American Indian Airwaves, Cowdy Radio. In the final segment of today's program, we visit the United States National Park Service's proposed changes to the National Registry of Historic Places, which includes a list of over 95,000 plus historically and culturally significant sites throughout the United States, as well as indigenous people's sacred sites. Proposed changes by the National Park Service would make it easier for U.S. government agencies to permit the destruction and the development over any of these historically and culturally significant sites that are listed on the National Registry of Historic Places. It would also make it more difficult for historically and culturally significant sites to be placed on the National Registry of Historic Places which would give it a form of federal protection. For the final segment of today's program, I speak with staff attorney Wes Furlong of the Native American Rights Fund out of Anchorage, Alaska, regarding the proposed changes by the National Park Service of the National Registry of Historic Places and what its implications are for indigenous peoples and their respective First Nations. The Congress passed the NHPA, the National Historic Preservation Act, in 1966, um, and with the ultimate goal of really recognizing and preserving places uh, that were historically and culturally significant um, to America. But for most of the National Historic Preservation Act's history, the history and culture that's been preserved and recognized under it has been predominantly white Euro-American history and culture, and the places important to that. And in the 1980s, there sort of became a growing, um, a growing recognition that historic preservation in the United States, at least at the federal level, was leaving, had left behind or, or overlooked the history and culture of Native America. And this, this sort of grew out of the folk life movement, but it eventually translated into the historic preservation profession. In the 80s, there's this rec- growing recognition that the culture and history of Native America had been really overlooked under the NHPA. And so in 1992, Congress passed a series of amendments to the NHPA, which uh, for the first time explicitly brought 
tribes, federally recognized Indian tribes, into the federal preservation system. Um, and it did that. There's a number of programs that it established for tribes, but I think two of the most important, particularly for this conversation, are two amendments. One, one amendment specifically recognized that places of traditional and religious cultural significance to tribes and Native Hawaiian organizations were eligible for inclusion on the National Register of Historic Places. And the Second Amendment required federal agencies to consult with those tribes and Native Hawaiian organizations when they are planning undertakings um, that may affect those places of traditional and religious cultural significance. And so those amendments sort of have created a whole new a whole new paradigm in historic preservation where now tribes are actually are able to partake in the federal preservation process and not only just partake in it, but be required to be a part of it. Um, the idea was at the time Congress viewed them as being a partner. I think federal agencies might not see tribes as being partners, unfortunately, but the idea behind those amendments in 1992 was to include tribes in the preservation of American culture and history and to really recognize for the first time that the history and culture of Native America was also the part of the history and culture of America more generally. So those those were critical because it allowed tribes to really um, participate in this in these different programs that were set up by the NHPA. Now, my understanding is um, one of the proposed uh, rule changes would prevent any site located on federal lands from being considered for preservation unless the quote-unquote relevant federal agency requests the determination. And um, I was wondering if you could kind of speak to that and what does that mean? Yeah, that's one of the that's one of the major one of the major um, issues that's raised with this this rulemaking. Um, I guess to answer that, I'll go back just um, just briefly and, and sort of mention that there's there's two two programs that the NHPA established in 1966 um, that are sort of at play here. One of them is the National Register of Historic Places, which is simply a list of places that are of historic and cultural significance to America. And the 1992 amendments also recognize that places of cultural and religious significance to tribes could also could be placed on that list. And being placed on that on the National Register uh, is largely symbolic. It, it means that the, the federal government has recognized or is giving recognition to a place as being important to the history or culture of America and and communities within America. Some tribes view that as very patronizing, um, but others think it is important to have that recognition. Uh, the other thing that the NHPA established is something called the Section 106 process, which requires federal agencies to consider the adverse impacts of undertakings, so uh, like federally permitted projects or projects that were undertaken by a federal agency, uh, to consider the effects of those undertakings on historic properties, both of those that are listed on the National Register and those that are determined eligible to be listed on the National Register. So the 1992 amendments, which said that places of traditional religious and cultural significance may be listed on the National Register, those then meant that federal agencies had to consider those types of places in the effects of those types of places in the planning of federal undertakings. So the National Register program, you know, it's mostly administered by states um, through state historic preservation officers. And generally, generally these state historic preservation officers or SHPOs submit 
nominations to the National Register, to the Park Service, to place certain properties on the National Register. And federal agencies also get to do this as well through federal preservation officers. Obviously, the, the, federal, the federal preservation officers can only nominate properties that are under federal control or on federal lands. But those are, the only two, those are the only two entities that can nominate properties to the National Register, either uh, the appropriate SHPO or the appropriate federal preservation officer. So for individuals, um, organizations, federally recognized tribes, non-recognized tribes, they can't directly nominate properties to the National Register. But what they can do is request that a SHPO or an FPO nominate a property to the National Register sort of on their behalf. And you do that through completing the nomination form and documenting this property and you submit it to the correct SHPO or FPO and then they go through a process of reviewing it and ultimately, hopefully, sending it on to the Park Service in D.C. to be listed on the National Register. So the, the current regulations allow the proponents of that nomination to appeal if the SHPO or the Federal Preservation Officer decide not to nominate it. And if, so if you submit a request for nomination and the SHPO or the FPO says, oh, I don't think this is eligible, or they just sit on it and don't ever do anything, there's recourse for the, the individual or the tribe or the organization to appeal to the National Park Service and say, look, the SHPO or this FPO is not processing this nomination. We want you to direct them to do that so it can be ultimately made the final ultimately have a final determination and be listed on the national register the new regulations that are being considered uh, take that appeal process away when it um, as it applies to federal agencies so this is and this is this is very common you know, this is very common for for tribes and other federally recognized tribes and non recognized tribes and other indigenous communities around in the United States the the, the history of the United States taking, you know, taking land, the history of removals and, you know, forced removals and allotments in the reservation system have meant that most, many, maybe not most, but many places of traditional religious and cultural significance to tribes or indigenous communities exist on lands that they no longer own or have access to. And many of those places uh, are located on lands that are controlled by federal agencies. So the only way for a tribe or an indigenous community to be able to nominate that property to the National Register is to go through this request for nomination process and ask the federal agency to do it for them. What happens in terms of the standards for qualifications of being deemed a culturally and historical significant site in this case? Um, so the, the 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 regulations have sort of a, a broad. There's they're called the National Register criteria. There's four types of criteria that a, that any historic property, including places of traditional religious cultural significance, must meet. But generally, and past certainly past practice is that why a place is important. You know why why a tribe or an indigenous community is saying a place is important. Um, that's generally given lots of deference by, or should be given lots of deference by the, the federal preservation officer, the SHPO the Park Service, um, because they're not in a position to know why this place is important to that community. Um, so these regulations don't change that um, explicitly. Um, but what they do, what they end up doing is making it harder for, making it much harder for, for tribes and you know, tribes, other indigenous communities, and then just other people and organizations as well um, to be able to, to nominate these properties by removing the ability to appeal a federal preservation officer's refusal to nominate a property on their land. Um, and under this administration, you know, this administration is very, is very opposed to tribes 
partaking in uh, the federal permitting and regulatory process, which they're allowed to do under um, the NHPA and other under other statutes. They're also very opposed to recognizing places of traditional religious cultural significance on the National Register because it require it then would require federal agencies to consider the effects to those places in permitting and other sorts of planning. And considering effects to these places is seen as a hindrance to the, the, the energy first policy of this administration. So federal preservation officers under at least this administration and you know, potentially other administrations are not necessarily going to be receptive to tribes and other communities and indigenous communities trying to get them to nominate properties to the National Register on their behalf. And I mean, there's there's also they they really shouldn't be having to they shouldn't have to go through the federal agency to do that anyway. Um, but unfortunately, that's the system that we're sort of stuck with right now. But it relies, you know, the, the system relies on the federal agency to put forward this nomination on behalf of of a tribe or of a of another community. And if they refuse to do it, your recourse has been the recourse has been you appeal that failure to to put it forward to the National Park Service. But these regulations remove the ability to then appeal that failure to do to nominate the property. And you're listening to an interview with Wes Furlong, a staff attorney of the Native American Rights Fund here on American Indian Airwaves County Radio. He's speaking on the United States National Park Service's proposed changes to the National Registry of Historic Places, which would put at jeopardy over 95,000 historically and culturally significant places throughout the United States that also includes Native American sacred sites, plus make it harder to qualify historically and culturally significant places within the United States. And now back to the interview. One of the other proposed rule changes that I thought was um, kind of maybe consistent with this administration, if you will, in just terms of third parties um, being able to um, speak out formally, if you will, uh, regarding any proposed um, application is that um, one of the other rule changes was that it would prevent properties from being listed in the National Registry of Historic Places if objections were received from a person who owned a majority of land or property in the area. So I, I minor saying owned a majority of land or property in the area and you have to ask what does that mean because what happens when you have a place that is being targeted by say a mining company or non-resource extractive company and they want to basically destroy or permanently alter to put it politely a culturally <laughs> and historic significant site for indigenous peoples. Yeah, so th- this is an, this is a this is a major major issue that um, I think every every tribe and tribal organization that's commented on these rulemaking this rulemaking so far has identified as one of the, their biggest issues with what the Park Service is doing right now. The NHPA itself does require that a property cannot be listed on the National Register if its owner objects. Or if it's a property that encompasses multiple individual properties, if the majority of those private landowners object, it cannot be listed on the National Register. Um, that, that's the statutory language of the, of the NHPA, and the regulations have reflected that for um, you know a number of years. The owner of the private property can object and prevent its listing, or the majority of private landowners can object. The big change that they're making now is... Inc- 
including in who can object the owners of the majority of land within inside a property that may inside a, within a historic property that might encompass more than you know more than one individual piece of land and that is a that is a a really stark departure from past practice it also is is completely contrary to what the law says um, and it's sort of it's also very con- it's, it's it's contrary to sort of the american the american the democratic system where each person gets one vote regardless of how much land that you own you know the park service seems to be reverting back to a a, a time where your voting counted on how much land you owned uh, rather than you know just being a person but I think you know really at the end of the day their their change to the majority of landowners is directly conflicts with what the law actually says it does not say that um and what what you what it will create is this, is situations where you know one maybe two landowners own the majority of land within an area that is culturally and and spiritually important and they can prevent it from being listed even if they are the minority of landowners and wow. and this and you know the circumstance you're talking about with mining with mining companies I, this is this is you know my my belief is this is targeted specifically for those instances where large development to prevent I mean really to prevent tribes from being able to um, list properties where large development projects are being considered or have the potential to be considered um, you know large mining companies might consolidate land ownership and then be able to prevent this and essentially keep tribes from keep tribes from being able to list list these places on the national register and secure the rights that they have under the NHPA to be consulted with in federal processes going forward determine you know to determine adverse effects of that place unfortunately the NHPA does not prevent development if a place is listed um, but it at least at, at, at a minimum it puts it, it requires tribes to be at the table when the federal government is permitting something or developing a project they have to be there they have to be consulted with and by preventing these places from being listed on the national register it is an attempt by this administration to keep tribes off out of the table and so that they won't be involved in these processes and so their voices won't be heard. Now, if if a site is already on the National Register of Historic Places, does it go through a periodic recertification process? And then if it does, would these new proposed rules affect the recertification process? Yeah, there is no period. There is no recertification process properties aren't kind of systematically reevaluated and can, and checked now to see if they're um, can still eligible um, and should be listed there is a process for organizations or individuals or whoever to petition the park service to remove properties from the national mm-hmm. register that a property can only be removed from the national register under that process if it can be shown that they no longer that property no longer retains its significance you know the reasons it was listed are no longer relevant. You know, perhaps it was a. Um, you know, the easiest example is perhaps it was an old building because uh, the National Register is just full of old buildings. Some old building that has since burned to the ground. You know, the owner of that property or someone may say may ask the Park Service to remove it because the building no longer exists. The, I think the scarier example would be, you know, a, a, a sacred site or a cultural landscape to a, a, a tribe or an indigenous community has then had development happen in it and someone could in theory I guess come around and say well we've desecrated this place it's no longer it can no longer be culturally important because we built a coal mine in the middle of it you should remove it but the the changes to this regulation should not if they were to be implemented should not be grounds for removing properties 
I know there's um, more than 95,000 properties listed um, as of early, uh, this year in the National Register, and all land and waters are indigenous people's traditional lands and waters. But of these properties, do we have any sense of how many of these properties may directly or even indirectly affect indigenous peoples and their respective First Nations? And then what's the timeline in this process? What's going to happen next? Right. So... You know, it's it's really hard to tell um, how many properties on the National Register are are culturally significant to a tribe, are a place of traditional religious and cultural significance. Certainly places that are culturally and religiously and traditionally significant to tribes were listed prior to 1992, uh, but we just didn't have the language then that we do now to kind of define them with these terms. Um, but I actually just had stumbled across the an article in the Journal of Northwest Anthropology discussing um, Mount St. Helens, which has been listed on the National Register back in um, like 2000, 2013. And an article that, that was written by someone at the Forest Service as well as someone who worked for the Confederated, uh, oh, the Cowlitz tribe, because um, they were they were behind this nomination. Uh, they, they said back in 2015 that there's only 23 places of traditional and religious um, cultural significance listed on the National Register. So of, of the 80 or 90,000 places, there's probably maybe under 100. So there's there's not many on there, and these new rules will make it harder and harder and harder for tribes to be able to list places on the National Register and to, at a, at a bare minimum, secure the sort of recognition that these places are important and have contributed to American broad American history and culture, but then also to secure these more procedural rights to ensure that they are consulted with if an undertaking is going to happen that could affect that place. In terms of next steps for this rulemaking, public comment closed on April 30th, I believe it was. And at the time, the federal government, uh, the the Park Service, uh, determined that they would not engage in consultation with tribes. They they said that this rulemaking would not substantially adversely affect tribes, so they didn't need to engage in consultation. Um, They received 70-plus comments from tribes and tribal organizations around the country, you know, um, from from Alaska through across the country. They received um, comments from organizations in Hawaii and Guam, all saying that that is totally wrong and that this is not just going to affect tribes, but targeted against tribes specifically. Um, And so they they finally relented. Um, Congress also stepped in and asked the Park Service why they weren't consulting with tribes. And so I think that they, they had the fear of God was sparked in them. So they did engage in consultation, and I would say very large and big air quotes around consultation, but they had a meeting, they had a single meeting with tribes in Nevada in the end of June and a teleconference the next week that tribes could call into and then extended the comment deadline for tribes to submit their own comments or, or more comments. Um, but that, that all, that all, the last, the comment, that comment period closed in the beginning of July, and now we're waiting to see what happens next. In terms of just sort of peer process, and if they're going to try to just push this through as quickly as possible, um, at this point, all they would need to do is publish a notice of final rulemaking, um, summarize the comments they received, summarize their responses to it, and then say, here are the changes we made or didn't make, and we're going to publish this, and then probably 30 days later, they'd be finalized. Wes, in this particular situation, does it matter whether an indigenous nation is federally recognized or only state recognized or perhaps not state recognized and not federally recognized? Yes and no. 
this is sort of where that distinction can become that you can sort of lose that distinction. Tribes and officially recognized Native Hawaiian organizations have specific rights under the NHPA. They have specific rights to consultation in the Section 106 process, and they have a specific right to see their places of traditional religious and cultural significance um, determined eligible for or listed on the National Register. Those two specific rights only apply to federally recognized tribes and Native Hawaiian organizations. On the other hand, any individual, any organization, a a state-recognized tribe, a non-federally recognized, non-state recognized um, indigenous community or nation, they all have, as, as well as federally recognized tribes and Native Hawaiian organizations, all have the ability to submit requests for nominations to federal federal preservation officers and state historic preservation officers to list historic properties on the National Register. The moment of silence is over. And that was staff attorney for the Native American Rights Fund, Wes Furlong, speaking on the United States National Park Service's proposed changes to the National Registry of Historic Places, which could adversely affect and jeopardize over 95,000 plus culturally and historically significant sites, as well as Native American sacred sites. And that concludes our show for today here on American Indian Airwaves County Radio. A special thank you to our guests for the entire hour, Executive Director of Amazon Watch, Leila Salazar-Lopez. And for more information, you can visit their website at amazonwatch.org. And Wes Furlong, Staff Attorney for the Native American Rights Fund. For more information on the Native American Rights Fund, you can visit their website at narf.org. And a special thank you to our musical guests for the hour, Aragon Star, Koopa Aina, Frank Waln, and the band Blackfire. American Indian Airwaves County Radio is mixed and mastered in the studio of Burnt Swamp Studio in Signal Hill, California. For Marcus Lopez, I've been your host for the hour, Larry Smith. Until next time. Silence is over.